Hi guys, I just wanted to apologize because there is a clicking noise coming from Dr. Michael Edelstein's audio that I did not realize until it was too late. It only lasts for uh, the first couple of minutes he speaks and then it gets quieter and quieter as it goes on until it's basically not noticeable. I apologize for the mistake and uh, I'll make sure it won't happen in the future. Hope you guys enjoy this interview. Hello and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have a very special guest here with me, one that was recommended by my last guest, uh, Dr. Walter Block, and I have here Dr. Michael Edelstein. Would you like to introduce yourself, doctor? Yes, I'm a clinical psychologist and author. I've written four books, and my most popular one is a self-help book based on my method called Three Minute Therapy, three is spelled out. I have a podcast called Three Minute Therapy Podcast. I have a Psychology Today blog called The Three Minute Therapist. Uh, so I've become identified with the term three minute therapy. And I do um, a kind of therapy called REBT, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. And I'll be discussing this throughout our interview. Uh, rational mode of behavior therapy, REBT, was uh, first introduced by Albert Ellis in the 1950s, and that changed the entire direction of the psychotherapy movement from talking about your childhood and free associating and uh, talking about your feelings and other Freudian-type styles to, uh, to looking at the basic cause for emotional disturbance. And the basic cause for emotional disturbance is your thinking, your ideas, your views. The ideas in your head cause your emotional disturbance because, and this is a basic principle, our emotions come from our thinking and our beliefs, not from situations. It's natural and common and wrong for people to think their emotions come from situations. So for example, you will hear people say, I'm stressed because I have a deadline, or I'm angry because my kid threw the breakfast all over the dining room, or I'm angry because this jerk cut me off in traffic. But that's not how we work psychologically because it's not the situation that causes your emotions. It's not this jerk cutting you off in traffic that made you angry. It's not uh your wife having an affair that made you jealous notice this uh attribution is the situation caused your emotions that's not how we work and if you understand that and base your emotions especially emotional disturbance on your disturbed thinking your irrational unrealistic unreasonable thinking then you're off to a good start because then the next step is to identify that thinking and question, challenge, contradict it, change it. Because there's never any good reason to be emotionally disturbed. You always have a choice and you always can change your thinking. So this is uh, the first principle I teach my clients and I discuss in my book, Three Minute Therapy, and show you various ways you can change your thinking and change your emotions. 
So to back up, let me see, say as a clinical psychologist, I help my clients overcome both emotional problems and behavioral problems, anxiety, depression, anger, guilt, resentment, hostility, fear, stress, and behavioral problems, which mainly are in two areas, addictions and procrastination. All right. Yeah, and I, I find all of this very interesting, um, especially applying it to uh, the interests of a lot of my audience, uh, various libertarian topics, and um, as you know, uh, kind of the topics that were suggested to me originally by Dr. Walter Block, but that also after doing some research into you, I, I, I definitely wanted to discuss and ask you about. And, and I do find this very interesting. And, and the first is really just kind of jumping off of something you said earlier about how our emotions are not actually dictated by situations, but rather, um, you know, are something that come from the mind, the psyche. And one pervasive thing I've seen throughout with libertarians in particular is this is this feeling of dread that they think comes from that they think it's a hopeless situation. The state has continually grown over the years. Um, the 20th century, which is part of the name of this show, uh, in particular was a big state of growth and that like our victories are rather minuscule in the grand scheme of things and that maybe it's hopeless. Uh, do you have any advice on how to avoid that kind of thinking and kind of just give your own analysis on why this kind of thinking comes into play and is so popular and pervasive among libertarians? Uh, that's a good question. And to answer it, it's important to distinguish between a life being hopeless, which normally it's not. Normally, no matter how bad life is, with some very extreme exceptions, you can still get some enjoyment out of life, be somewhat productive. So life, your life normally is not hopeless, but a situation might be. For example, if your goal was to flap your arms and fly, that is hopeless. You're not going to do it. Uh, so there are hopeless situations. Now, since I'm not a psychic or I don't have a crystal ball, I don't know if how far libertarianism is going to get. I try to be optimistic and work toward it, toward uh, uh, persuading people to the freedom philosophy. But I can't predict the future. And I hope we're making some headway and I see little spots where we are. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not very great uh, inroads into the uh, dictatorial vicious state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble um, detaching life from situation, especially when, you know, uh, some of these situations that libertarians are concerned are are becoming more and more unavoidable. You know, uh, to some extent, you can avoid the thralls of the drug war by not consuming drugs. Um, but, you know, especially with the, the COVID regime and, and COVID policies, it's becoming much and much harder to just avoid that, uh, you know, with vaccine mandates and various other policies that kind of force the government and the state into your life. And it's harder to just avoid it because, you know, we really can't just not work. We really can't just not go and get food. Um, so I, 
kind of wanted to ask, what is your personal advice as, as, a, as a psychologist and as somebody who deals with people who have these emotions? What is your advice for not just my audience, but libertarians and people just in general to kind of deal with this, this, this reality and, and to, to better their attitudes about it? Okay, good question. So, um, as you're saying, Peyton, there is a difference between the situation and your uh, overweening emotions. Uh, you don't have to be uh, hopeless and miserable, be, even if the situation is uh, pretty bad and getting worse. So, my advice starts with this basic principle if you have emotions, that you'd like to change, again, first step is see, it's not the situation that forces you to feel hopeless, depressed, suicidal, but it's your thinking about it. The second step is, well, what are these, uh, what's this thinking? I call it irrational or unrealistic thinking uh, for a number of reasons, but one reason is it gets bad results. If you feel depressed and suicide, suicidal, that's a bad result. So uh, the second step is, uh, these, this type of thinking is thinking in terms of demands. Must, shoulds, supposed tos, have tos, demands we put on ourselves, others, and situations. For example, demands we sometimes put on ourselves that causes anxiety and depression. It starts with a preference. I prefer to do well and get approval, and I absolutely must, I have to, and if I fail at something or people reject me, this means I'm no good. And that tends to lead to anxiety, guilt, stress, and some shame, embarrassment, similar kinds of emotions. So that's the demand or must number one, a demand on oneself. The second is a demand on others. And this leads to anger, resentment, hostility. And that takes the form of because I prefer you to treat me well, lovingly, kindly, courteously, understandingly, reciprocally, therefore you absolutely must treat me well. And if you don't, you're no good. You're a rotten person. You deserve to roast in hell. And I just appointed myself your roaster. And as I said, that leads to anger, resentment, hostility. And that doesn't help. It usually alienates others, and it uh, tends to eat you up inside. So I'm totally against anger. Anger doesn't help. It's, it's just uh, a waste of time, energy, and emotional investment. Then the third and final kind of demand is not a demand on oneself or, or another person. It's a demand on the impersonal conditions of one's life. And that's what we've been talking about. Libertarians deal with a lot, maybe even most. Life must be fair, easy, hassle-free, uh, reasonable. Um, and if it's not, then life is horrible. Life is no good. And that also tends to lead to depression, procrastination, or addictions addictions and procrastination to escape from what you decide is a horrible, awful, end-of-the-world scenario. So what I suggest to libertarians who are in the mire of these emotions is to identify the thinking that's causing it, the unreasonable thinking, 
and question, challenge, and contradict it. And an easy rule of thumb is must, should, supposed tos, have tos, and global evaluations are always fictions. There are no musts. There's only one way there would be musts, and that is if you were elected ruler of the universe, then things must be the way you would like them to be. But as far as I know, Peyton, you haven't been elected ruler of the universe yet. <laughs> There's an election, I might vote for you, <laughs> but, uh, but not yet. Neither have I, neither have, has Walter, anyone else. So there's no reason why life and the government should be reasonable, fair, just, the way we prefer it be, to be. So those are some of the uh, re basic reasons why musts and shoulds are false. And they're all fictions, as I said, unless you run the universe. So. Give up your shoulds, give up your musts, no demanding, but preferring, work toward your goals. Don't give up on libertarianism. Work toward your goals mm -hmm. and uh, write a book, give a talk, join a libertarian movement, uh, persuade your neighbors, things like that. Don't give up. But don't demand it be successful immediately or at all. And Walter Block likes to say, even if I were on a desert island and I had no influence over anyone, I'd still write, write, and write because I enjoy the process. Mm -hmm. I enjoy writing about liberty. It's an aesthetic experience for me. And uh, so that's probably the best way to look at it. So trying to create a free world is a process. Enjoy the process. And mm -hmm. if you get hooked on the product, is it working or not, then, uh, then you're in for emotional and behavioral problems. Yeah, I, I actually, I totally agree and uh, am surprised by uh, how much your, your worldview um, encapsulates how my own thinking has uh, kind of evolved because uh, I I personally was trapped in this very much of the, the hopelessness mindset when it came to achieving libertarianism and I think I came to realizations that you came to maybe not as, as profound as you uh, have explained them but you know I, I went and said you know I, I while I don't see it the my goals being accomplished in the next few years maybe even within my lifetime that doesn't really matter because i enjoy you know doing these things and i i see it as a worthwhile goal even if i fail even if i am not successful i see it as worthwhile even even doing this and just um interviewing people and and spreading libertarian content i don't do it because i think i'm going to get successful you know when i see a video not doing well i say well oh well at least it's out there at least you know i made that effort it didn't succeed as i wanted it to but it did and i think that's uh a mindset that I think needs to be uh, spread more in libertarianism, and that's certainly a uh, motivation for having you on. Um, I wanted to continue and go through because something I saw you lecture about a lot was um, specific situations of just like how to avoid psychological depression, and uh, particularly you spoke about economic depressions. So I kind of wanted to to ask you what. What are the tangible behaviors and, and, and 
ways and steps that people can avoid um, this this depression um, or this this psychological thinking that leads to self destruction in these these horrible events like economic depression or um, it, now with COVID and everything that it brings. Yeah, so there are, you ask about uh, things you could do, and there are um, things you could think, and uh, with an economic depression, and let's start with what you do, since I've been talking about your thinking. Things you can do is uh, keep up the fight, keep getting the word out or do whatever uh, you prefer to do. Some people prefer to write, lecture, uh, make YouTubes, which are very, very popular these days. So it's great that you're doing these, Peyton. And um, so there are various things you can do not to get depressed, even though uh, the economy is depressed. There are financial things you can do, but that's not my area of expertise in terms of investing and those kinds of things. And uh, then there are cognitive things you can do, which is if you find yourself getting, feeling depressed, then uh, use this basic principle. It's my thinking. It's not the situation, number one. So what is my thinking that's causing my feeling of depression about the economic depression? And where is the must? Where is the should? Where is the have to? and uproot that, abolish your musts and shoulds and have tos, um, and you'll be a lot better off. Now, it's easy for me to say, and it's a lot harder to do, uh, it sounds simple, but it takes work and practice and work and practice, identifying this thinking and working on changing it. And uh, in my book, Three Minute Therapy, I give many examples of tools and techniques you can use to change it. One of the main ones is I call the three-minute exercise. And it's uh, another way, and some people call it the ABC exercise. And uh, if you like, I can explain that. It'll take a couple of minutes. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think um, it would be interesting and also useful uh, if, you, if you'd like to continue on that. Okay, so... Uh, it's sort of a flow chart that starts with A and goes alphabetically to F. So let's start with A, B, and C. So A stands for activating event or antecedent situation right before you begin to feel upset. And since we're talking about depression, let's use uh, someone who feels depressed because we're not, we don't seem to be getting that far in getting the message out. So A, the activating event could be something like, um, I've been trying to get the message out and I don't seem to be succeeding. So that could be a, a common situation among libertarians. So that's A, the activating event. Then we skip B for a minute, we go on to C. C is your undesirable emotional consequence. The consequence, not of the situation, but of B, your belief, which we'll get to. So C could be depressed. So A, uh, I and my colleagues are not succeeding in getting the message out. That's A, the activating event. C is my uh, consequent emotion. 
I feel depressed about that. But it's not A that causes C. It's not the state seemingly getting bigger and bigger and bigger that forces you to be depressed at C, but rather it's B. And at B, we're looking for demands. Must, should, supposed to, have to. So one common situation in this situation is uh, the state must not be continually growing. Uh, this is unfair, unjust, and it's uh, awful, terrible, horrible, the end of the world. So we have A and C, but now we fill in with the belief that's causing the C, your depression, and that is things must progress in a positive direction. So A, activating event, things are seem to be progressing in a negative direction. B, things must progress in a positive direction. And C, you're depressed because of your must. And must lead to global evaluations. It's hopeless. Life is hopeless. It's the end of the world. I can't stand it, those kinds of things. Uh, any questions so far about A, B, or C? Uh, no, I, I, I think... I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think um, it kind it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about um, kind of our our thinking, not necessarily the event itself, uh, is what is causing these negative feelings, these feelings of depression, and um, I think that's a good way to explain it. It's not the way I would have previously explained it, but I think it's a much more eloquent way of explaining it. Yes, yeah. it's a very elegant way. And the solution is very elegant also. So we have A, B, and C. And then for the solution, we go on to D, E, and F. D stands for disputing or questioning the irrational belief. We try to be empiricists and ask for the evidence for our beliefs. So what is the evidence? Things must, have to, should progress in a positive direction. And whenever you look for evidence for musts and shoulds, You'll never find it because they're fictions that humans seem particularly talented to be able to invent, uh, but they're fictions. There are no master shoulds, as we discussed earlier, just are human subjective preferences. So if you ask at D, what is the evidence things must progress in a positive direction? And then we go on to E, effective new thinking or the answer to the question. And the, there are many answers, a few are, although I prefer very strongly, passionately, that things progress in a positive direction, there's no reason it has to. This is very unfortunate, but hardly the end of my world. I don't like this situation, but I definitely can stand what I don't like. Demanding things progress better doesn't help and only makes me depressed. And it's not the execrable situation that causes my depression, but rather it's my irrational must thinking about it that does. And with practice and uh, reinforcement and going over this approach again and again and again, I can change my thinking and not be uh, ecstatic about the situation. This isn't feel-good therapy, but be more realistic, more accepting, 
though not liking the situation, and uh, seeing what I could do, if anything, about it, rather than getting depressed and withdrawing from the world. And once you come up with that, again and again and again and again, then that leads to F. E leads to F, new feeling, which would be still a negative feeling, such as great concern, great disappointment, extreme frustration, uh, great regret, so still negative feelings, and intense negative feelings, but not the kind that eat you up inside and make you miserable forever. Now, if you see how this works, B causes C, your irrational must should causes your depression, whereas rejecting the must, there are no musts, at E, E leads to F, a more appropriate, not adaptive emotion, still negative, but more appropriate. And if you're not depressed, then normally, you're, and you don't like the situation, you're in better shape to do things about it. Do interviews, write books, give talks, get the word out, and those kinds of things. So that's uh, actually the whole therapy, rational motive behavior therapy, and my approach in a nutshell. And that's what you'll read about in my book uh, with great examples, elaboration, those kinds of things, three-minute therapy. I have a website, three-minutetherapy.com. Three is spelled out. And uh, that's pretty much the uh, long and short of it. Yeah, I, and I think that's very useful of advice that I think a lot of um, people in the liberty movement are lacking and, and a big reason why I wanted to have you on. Um, and I will certainly be dropping down links to both your book and your website uh, so people can access those resources. But uh, this does kind of make, um, make a shift that I did want to make because another concept I've seen you talk about a lot is um, criticizing specific kind of philosophical or, or main ideas of libertarianism that do cause this kind of thinking and one of them is Ayn Rand's concept of self-esteem. So if you um, could, could you explain uh, her concept of self-esteem and then kind of go into the reasons why you find, um, I think the word you use a lot is unreasonable and, and, and why it's harmful. Because I think Ayn Rand is someone who um, still has a lot of influence, especially in the in the thinking, um, the way to think about the world kind of aspect in libertarianism. So, yes, I think uh, Ayn Rand did very much, uh, very many positive things. I think she uh, got many people interested in libertarianism, which is great. And I think I enjoyed Atlas Shrugged. I didn't read The Fountainhead. But I enjoyed Atlas Shrugged. I thought it was a very, very good novel. I think it was about a thousand pages, and I read the whole thing, except of course John Galt's speech. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but so I thought she was a good writer. I know more literary people don't think she's the greatest writer, but uh, on my level, it's it interested me. So there are many positive things that could be said about Ayn Rand. Um, but her ideas about self-esteem. And her colleague, Nathaniel Brandon's a libertarian psychologist who was on the same page as Ayn Rand, uh, are really unreasonable. And uh, the problem is the following. When, uh, when 
someone comes to therapy and they feel depressed, the therapist will often correctly say, say well, you have low self-esteem. You're putting yourself down, you're selling yourself short, you think you're a loser, those kinds of things. And uh, that's true, that causes low self-esteem, that kind of thinking. But then the solution to low self-esteem offered by many self-esteem authors and Nathaniel Band and Ayn Rand is high self-esteem. Don't put yourself down, put yourself up. And there are a variety of problems there. One is low self-esteem or high self-esteem comes from self-rating, which means you look at how you act and you did well and you say, this makes me a good person. Or you did poorly, you did badly, you say, this makes me a bad person, a loser. So you're evaluating your total worth based on the evaluation of the situation. And that's a gross overgeneralization because uh, your acts, the evaluation of your acts, are not equal to the evaluation of your personhood, yourself, your worth. Um, so the idea is rate your behavior. That's important because if you rate behavior as positive, then maintain it. If you rate your behavior as negative, then try to change it. So, but then when you judge your entire self based on that, it makes no sense because it leads to uh, these problems of high and low self-esteem. If you have high self-esteem, that means normally I'm a good person. If I'm a good person, I really can't do any wrong. I'm better than everyone else. And if you think you can't do any wrong, you act well, you're not going to be very motivated to try to do better. And you're going to make invidious comparisons to others' worth, and uh, that won't help you get along with other people. So rate your behavior, but don't rate your entire self. So if you do that, then the idea of self-esteem goes out the window. You can esteem or rate highly your behavior. That's a good idea, but stop there. So that's, uh, that's really the Ayn Rand idea of self-esteem and other self-esteem authors, and that's the essential problem with it. Uh, by the way, another aspect to this patent is, as we were discussing earlier, the uh, self-rating comes from shoulds and musts. I must do well, and because I did, that leads to a global evaluation. I'm a good person. And if I don't do what I must, that leads to a global evaluation. I'm a loser. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. So if you give up your mass, then self-rating goes out the window. Uh, so that's another angle on the self-esteem problem. Yeah, I, I think what you hit on Ayn Rand's idea of self-esteem can broadly be um, put out on a lot of her other... Uh, ideas that get a lot of critique, especially around people in the more um, Misesian tradition and, and circles. Uh, famously, Rothbard had, you know, his disagreements with Ayn Rand that they had quite quite the feud. But I think that uh, really that 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 her idea of self-esteem um, being kind of the inverse of what we were talking about earlier, where people see. 
um, their accomplishments and then overrate themselves and it causes behavior that we as libertarians can find uh, to be contradictory to to our ends I think famously um, uh, one of her followers um, I'm kind of blanking on his name unfortunately at the moment but I think it's Glenn Greenwald um, or that may be someone else but uh, one of the one of her followers went on to be a Fed chairman and oh, Alan Greenspan Alan Greenspan there we go I don't know why I got him confused with Glenn Greenwald but yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Greenspan and I think yeah. most people would agree um, as a Fed chairman he was a pretty typical Fed chairman and did many things that hurt liberty that hurt um, the economics of you know the right wing the the libertarians um, and and I think a lot of that came from his idea of self-esteem that he got from Ayn Rand. He probably thought that any action he did was good be, and virtuous because he made that success. He was a libertarian who, who got into a position of power, who was able to forward Ayn Rand's goals. So I think it's um, good and in, in, in a good critique of Ayn Rand. Um, but some would argue, it, you know, it, isn't it in a problem in ourselves if, you know, libertarians, famously, we don't have the most victories where, uh, especially if you're going to go use the metric of the Libertarian Party, which I know many people don't, um, you know, we don't have those amazing victories. Shouldn't we covet them and, and value them highly when we get them? Um, what would be your kind of like response to that thinking to that? that we oh, should? yeah. Well, I agree with one thing you said, but not with the other. Uh, yes, it's good. To be happy about our victories, covered them as you say, and uh, and give give uh, ourselves uh, a uh, plus or give our actions a plus for the victories. That's great, uh, but it's not a problem in ourselves. Uh, it's a uh, and the the key thing there is ourselves. Not a problem in ourself or our personhood or our worth, it's a problem in our actions. So differentiate our actions from our worth or our total self. Uh, so that's one of the keys here. Another thing I wanted to say about self-esteem is uh, there's a problem with nationalism and self-esteem because people tend to identify with their country. So if the country does well, then that then they feel like they're a good person, and if the country does poorly, then they feel like they're a, a bad person. So there's an emphasis now on doing better technologically than China. Uh, I think partly because people identify with the U.S. doing better, they feel good about themselves, and or the U.S. doing worse. Whereas my view is. The, the further technology advances, the better, because it could be used for good effect and improving our lives. It can be used for the opposite also, and it seems like there's somewhat of an arms race between the good use and the poor use of technology, but uh, everything has its advantages and disadvantages. So on the positive side, I think it's good, and if uh, a vaccine is developed in China, that's effective. That's great, because then there's a vaccine in the world, and uh, then it could be used here, assuming China doesn't have 
all kinds of patents and property rights on it and things like that and allows it to get right so get out so uh, so that's uh, what I was wanting to say about nationalism and uh, and uh, how to how to separate the evaluation of ourselves from the evaluation of our acts because this has uh, broad implications as with nationalism and I'm not saying don't judge some people misinterpret the messages don't judge people which some psychologists say don't judge they throw out all judging but it's good to judge your acts rate your acts but not total people so if someone is a socialist that's bad thinking but they're not a bad person okay yeah i um i kind of wanted to push in on an, uh the later uh, the latter idea that you were talking about about um nationalism um because i i do agree that a lot of people uh will identify with their country um so much that they will care more about um singular goals than they do about the greater good or um the the actual good for the collective that they're identifying with um but and this might be a need of clarification, but it kind of seems like a, a, a criticism of collective thinking of like thinking, I want what's better for my community and what is better for my community is better for me. Would, would that be correct to say that it's a criticism of that or more that it's a criticism of go, just going along with the community um, just to go along with the community? Yeah, yeah, it's a. It's a criticism of tribalism, which we see a lot. We see two main tribes here, and uh, something happens in the world, and the opinions of it seem to break down to, to the two tribes. Um, and uh, uh, Jack Kennedy had a phrase about that. He said, uh, don't ask what you can do for yourself. Ask what you can do for your country, something like that. Do you, do you remember the first part of that um, I, I believe the full saying was um, don't ask what you can do for yourself ask what ask only what you can do for your country and, something like that or uh, sorry sorry ask not what you your country can do for you but what oh, your, yeah. you can do for your country yeah 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 but um, I have a different view and this is somewhat uh, in politics, uh, I think that if you ask what you could do for yourself while considering other people, uh, then uh, then the country as a whole will be better off. So I think it's better to think in individual sense in general um, in this way. And keep in mind that non-aggression principle means put yourself first, but don't initiate aggression against others. So in order to do what you can for yourself that doesn't mean hitting other people over this over the head because you can help yourself by getting their money so keep uh, the non-aggression principle in as a boundary okay so it just to kind of summarize what your position is and kind of put it in a, a easy digestible way it would you say it's that the collective well-being begins at the individual well-beings and kind of trickles up, if you will, um, into the better well-being of everyone else. 
That's my view, but again, that's getting a little afield from psychology. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think someone more versed in economics, someone like Walter Block would have, <laughs> might have a more thorough answer. But in general, I'd say it seems that way to me. Yes, uh, what could I do to improve my life uh, without stepping on other people? And uh, then the life of everyone will be improved. Yeah. Well, I guess returning more to the realm of psychology, there is the idea that um, the individual cannot have... There there are some people who put forth the idea that the individual cannot have um, a good well-being if the collective does not have also a good well-being. And would you say that it's the opposite? That, That, you know collective i guess psychological well-being begins at an individual level and trickles up yes if we use uh psychological as a modifier and uh, that is uh the the better your life is the better it's likely to trickle up as you say so that would be my view okay um i think I only had one more topic I wanted to get into um, before we um, kind of ended, but I think the the idea of emo- being emotionally free is something that comes up in your work a lot, um, especially in, when we are in a, a world that is very unfree, even emotionally. I mean, um, uh, we have a lot of the the even just the ideas we were just talking about self-esteem that have pervaded even into libertarianism and pervade into general society of self-esteem being um, viewed through the lens that you describe it and the dangers it has. Um, How do we as individuals, you know, avoid this and allow ourselves to be psychologically free and and truly move to, to better ends? Yeah, good question. And the way to be politically free is to see what we're fighting, and we're basically fighting the state. And uh, the uh, tentacles, the vicious depredations of the state. And uh, there's a parallel thing in uh, psychology, and that is we're we're fighting musts and shoulds. So we're ruled by our musts and shoulds rather than being ruled by the state. So the solution is, as I've been saying in some of the ways we discussed, is identify your demands, musts and shoulds, escalating your preferences into demands, and question, challenge, and contradict them. Abolish all musts and shoulds, just like in this political sphere, we'd like to abolish the state. So your musts and shoulds is sort of your personal state, in a sense. So abolish musts and shoulds, identify your preferences, and work hard to achieve your preferences, your passions, your objectives, your goals in life. And if you're a libertarian, they would be to try to move uh, our society a little closer to freedom. All right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's very good advice, and I think we've we've touched on a lot of, you know, very, like, practical, psychological uh, thought and, and behavior that libertarians can practice and um, it has been a very productive conversation um, I'd like to give you the chance to promote anything you'd like to to my audience um, anything that you think they need to check out um, I'll make 
This the the floor is yours, I should say. Okay, thanks, Peyton. So, uh, I, I mentioned I wrote four books, and I talked about three-minute therapy, which uh, goes over these basic principles in much more detail, with lots of examples, uh, with different problems such as anxiety, depression, anger, relationship problems, uh, procrastination, addictions. So there are chapters uh, devoted to each one of those. And it's sort of like Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Uh, the first lesson is uh, the basic fallacy in economic thinking, where he talks about the seen versus the unseen. And the first chapter in my book, the introduction is these basic principles that uh, you've been asking me about and we flushed out. And then it's applied to these various problems, uh, social phobias and uh, uh, money worries and things like that. So, so that's my book, Three Minute Therapy. And I have a Three Minute Therapy podcast, which I do weekly with my REBT uh, colleague, Kevin Benbow. By the way, if you'd like to come on the podcast and discuss the psychological problem that you have, we'd be happy to have you as a guest. Or if you're a therapist yourself and you'd like some suggestions in working on a client, uh, come on, volunteer as a guest, let us know. And you can find my email address and my phone number on my website, 3minutetherapy.com therapy.com or if you'd like to argue with me about self-esteem or some of these ideas uh, that would be particularly interesting so let me know give me a, a call or an email and uh, my colleague and I would be happy to have you on the uh, on the podcast um, so those are the basic things that I could mention uh, if you have any questions about anything Peyton and I discussed feel free to give me a call or shoot me an email uh, and uh, I'd be happy to respond. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yes. Oh, no. Continue. Yeah, Sorry. I just wanted to thank you, Peyton, yep. for having me uh, as your guest. And I was very impressed with your questions with Walter and interactions and, and your thoughtful approach to uh, interviewing him. And I found the same in this interview, so I appreciate that, and I hope your podcasts are distributed far and wide. And if there's <laughs> anything I can do to help, let me know. Yeah, I, I will. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, and I'll make sure to link all those in the description so you guys can check them out and promote those as well. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Peyton. Thanks yeah. again.